Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Atayu Agba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. On today's show, I'm talking to the journalist and podcaster Pandora Sykes, previously an editor at the Sunday Times Style, you may remember her days as the magazine's wardrobe mistress, as well as the former co-host of the wildly successful podcast, The Hilo Show which during its four-year duration grew to become one of the biggest podcasts in the UK and was absolutely one of my favourite culture and news podcasts. Most recently, Pandora has written the Sunday Times best-selling collection of essays, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right?, which comes out in paperback on May 13th. And so today we're discussing several of those essays, which attempt to dissect and give some shape to the infinite choices that modern life presents us with and cover everything from ambition and comparisonitis to the wellness industry and the psychology of fast fashion. We also discussed Pandora's own career, the beginning and end of the high-low, her time as a fashion journalist, dealing with criticism and her personal definition of career success. I really loved doing this interview. Pandora is such a careful and generous thinker and we ended up going on several tangents throughout the episode, though I'm sure you'll find them as enjoyable as I did. Here she is. The essays came out four months into the pandemic and I was sort of torn between thinking it was a really bad time for them to come out and actually maybe quite a good time to come out. Bad because I didn't want it to troll people with versions of their previous lives, remind them of things that they did or the ways that they did things that they obviously now couldn't. But maybe a good time because there's been an opportunity to look at the lives we were leading and even if you're not able to act on those changes people are kind of in this reflective time I think of everything else being stripped away all of those kind of filler smaller decisions the icing on the cake whether it's whether to go on holiday or where to go to the cinema or what friend to hang out with at the weekend all of that's been taken away so you're just left with these huge decisions in life the kind of make or break ones like where do you live and what job do you do and do you have children and what are the cornerstones to your life what do you believe in what do you want to raise your children believing in and so I think there's been a clarity for a lot of people about that and where they can I've seen lots of people making actually quite big decisions about their lives in the last year and I think that reflective phase will continue even as we start to go back to normal life quite unquote because obviously not everything's going to come back immediately and also psychologically we can't ever unknow what it was like to live during the pandemic that will always inform the way we do stuff. Mm. I think we just weren't used to well certainly most people weren't used to just giving so much thought to how they live their lives on a conscious level I think you know we make these decisions and we do these things but generally you're just so busy that I don't think have time but yeah it has definitely been a year of reflection I mean have you made any changes sort of big or small in terms of how you approach life I'm making or considering smaller decisions where I live and the existence of my children hasn't changed but I've kind of been flirting within those confines about changing the way I do stuff I've always been a really routined person and I've actually jettisoned routine as much as possible as it is when you also have the routine of routines of kids but I've kind of thrown the idea of a work routine up in the air and seen what happens and actually it's been quite chaotic (laughs) but I wonder if it's 
Yeah, because I <laughs> I was very ordered about when I worked and, you know, made lots of lists and stuff and was quite disciplined about what I take on. And this year I decided to say yes to as much as possible and be a bit more free about when I felt like I was ready to do the work and when I just needed some time to do some creative thinking. What it means is that I've missed some deadlines and I end up working in the evenings and weekends. So it's not necessarily a purely beneficial thing, but I think it was quite good for me maybe just to kind of challenge myself on those boundaries that I set. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's really interesting to hear because I think something that I've always admired slash envied about you and the way you work is that I know that you are super disciplined whereas I'm really not like what you've just this experiment that you've just described is basically my life all of the time which is chaos working late or working super early in the mornings and then just not having any sort of routine I tend not to miss deadlines although to be honest the past few weeks I have been as well so It's sort of interesting to hear someone dabbling with that and finding that it's it's not for them. I mean, I think there have been so many interesting and unexpected social dynamics that have emerged as a result of the pandemic. And something that I've found really striking, and I'm sure you have opinions about, has been the sort of shaming, particularly on social media, of rule breakers or perceived rule breakers, that's really shocked me. And it's not because I think that we shouldn't be following the lockdown rules. I have really followed them to a T, but I've just found people really sanctimonious about it. And I'm curious as to what you think of that, whether you agree, where you think that urge comes from. There has been a staggering amount of judgment. And I think that's just because everyone has had such a unique set of circumstances. I know you also loved that essay by Zadie Smith on suffering, a taker in intimations where she says that kind of the great hoax of the pandemic is everyone thinking they have it worse. And I think what I find a little bit exasperating to see is the judgment of people in circumstances that are so completely different to our own. I don't know, young people who don't have children criticising parents who wanted to send their children to school, you know, saying, but what about the teachers? And you're not thinking about the health of the teachers without thinking that maybe you can hold two things in your heart, which is concern for the teachers, but also utter desperation to have a minute to yourself to try and get your work done. I mean, I don't have children of a school age, so that is me kind of observing at a distance. So yes, I think it's been spectacularly judgmental. I think the interesting thing about the rule breaking, and I'm not going to lie, I found observing some of it quite galling. Some of it is really flagrant. And I'm definitely not talking about that. But I think what I'm talking about is the where there's been slight rule bending, which I like I said, I really haven't done that myself. But I also think, well, clearly this person is unable to cope. Also, I've only just started living by myself. And I'm like, God, if I'd been living by myself for this past year, I absolutely would have been bending the rules. Like I I feel kind of buoyed by the fact that, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel, lockdowns apparently lifting but I've just seen so much of it and it drives me mad and it's come from people who I really wouldn't have expected it of. I think there's a real difference between going on holiday to Dubai or having a 30th birthday party a la Rita Ora and going to see your best friend when you both live alone and you know one of you's lost someone you love. I've had several best friends who really tragically have lost immediate family And it's quite weird that in the two months since one of my best friends of over 20 years lost her dad, I haven't hugged her. So I really understand when people for their own mental health need to 
break those rules. But I think the thing is, is people don't have the opportunity to have those sprawling conversations in the pub or in the cafe or at church or outside the school gates or by the water cooler where that kind of like quite pointless but cathartic bitching would happen. So it's all going online or into comment sections. And of course, it's not important. It's a distraction. But we've always focused on the small distractions rather than the big systemic things. That is literally how humanity works. Of course, people should get angrier and more invested in the fact that there aren't enough school meals for children living under the poverty line or the rolling back of women's rights in various areas of the world. Of course, we should get more angry about that, not to mention the pandemic, than we should about Rita Ora's party. But that just isn't the way it, it's just not the way it goes, is it? (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned the Zadie Smith essay because you quoted that and mentioned it in your prologue for the paperback that's coming out soon. And I found that that essay collection intimations really landed at like a really good time for me. So it came out last summer, maybe kind of July, August. And I was having a really difficult time for various reasons, which in short, I'd been trying to buy a flat and it wasn't going very well, which is just like not the biggest problem in the grand scheme of things. And I, I definitely felt a little bit embarrassed about being so distraught about it have you noticed this but I felt like especially again on social media when people talked about having a difficult time for xyz reason they felt like they had to caveat it with oh but I know I don't have this worst off and I was just like just say you're having a shit time like it's it's okay to just be like I'm having a really shit time because of this yes I did witness that I have long felt concerned that People have gone to social media to talk about their shit time before necessarily they've talked to the people in their life. And I worry about putting your vulnerability online. That's something that actually concerns me, irrespective of the pandemic. And I also saw quite a few people who were complaining about having a hard time where it was something surmountable. And of course, that doesn't mean you can't say that you're having a hard time. But I do think we all need to think a little bit about where we put that hard time. But that comes from a personal place of I've never used social media in that way. I would always talk to people offline just because once you put something out there, it's everyone else's to pick over and to do what Zadie Smith talks about to decide whether or not you're allowed to have a hard time. I did see something on Instagram the other day being like renovating our house. It's this mansion renovating our house has been the most stressful three months of our life if we can get through this we can get through anything and I you know I was just like oh god of course talk to your immediate social media about that milieu how do I say that word I think it's milieu (laughs) such a satisfying word to say but also quite difficult it's the kind of Um, word you write but never say out loud (laughs) basically in short a lot of the people who are having the hardest time don't tend to spill about that on social media. So yes, I don't think we should ever lessen what someone's feeling. But I do sometimes do a bit of an eye roll about some of the things on social media, just because we've got to a point where, because of course, social media has encouraged us to do this, where you're kind of, it's normal to use it as a way to talk about, I don't know, it's something I'm a bit concerned about generally. Yeah, I get that. I'm a sharer on social media, but I actually don't really share my like deep emotional turmoils, I think in a way. And I find it surprising when some people do like, you know, I will happily share 
a shitty comment a guy has made on Hinge. In fact, I won't even really share that, to be honest. But I think the big emotional stuff, I'm quite aware of, as we've just discussed, how people, especially when you have a public profile, people tend to judge you and people tend to store away those statements and use them as sort of leverage later down the line. But anyway, kind of moving away from that. An essay that I found really interesting to reread sort of post-pandemic is Get the Look, which you wrote all about sort of fast fashion and clothes and shopping. And I found that really interesting because I personally am in quite a weird place with shopping and clothes at the moment. Like I'm buying a lot more and sharing stuff on Instagram more in a way that I didn't do pre-pandemic. I think partly because I have no one to share those items with in real life. And I'm curious as to how you think the pandemic is changing our relationship with fashion and shopping and all that sort of stuff. So you talking about shopping a lot more. I don't think that the cultural conversation is taking into account people like you that are and lots of other people that are because I keep reading about how people are shopping not for their home my god not for their home but people are buying clothes less and that they're thinking about where they're buying them from a lot more and that the retail landscape is changing which it is so much I mean RIP Topshop just I can't even really believe that it hasn't to be fair been a massive part of my life for a little while just because I am officially too old now but then I don't think that that accounts for the fact that if you look at the sales of Boohoo and I saw it here first, or I wore it first, you stole it. I mean, they've all got such long names. Rebellious fashion, Vivici, I name enough of them in that chapter, don't I? If you look at them, all of their sales have stayed steady. I think some of them have had like their best quarter ever. You know, they've done an Amazon, basically. And that's because people shop in two very distinct ways now. And it does tend to fall across age lines, but not always. It just depends on your social group. Is either people buy clothes for a specific purpose, but aren't generally fussed about newness, or, and these tend to be people that are very engaged in online, they need that newness irrespective of where they're going because it's for their online life. And so people have still been shopping from Boohoo and such like, and one of my best friends has got a swimwear line and their sales aren't down at all. People are just buying the swimwear at home. That's insane. But I mean, I find that so surprising because I would have thought, you know, swimwear, no one's really going on holiday. I mean, I feel like I'm stockpiling for this inevitable future when I can finally wear all of my gaudy clothes out, you know, into the world. Honestly, I I think I'm going to start hosting outfit viewings and people can just drive by my front door and I'll just show them what I've bought that week. I find it interesting because, you know, you wrote something in there about how it becomes truly impossible to truly determine how much of our shopping is about liking the item itself and how much of it is about wanting a look. And I would add to that, you know, two kind of further bits, how much of it is about being assaulted by an item on Instagram and wanting to share it on Instagram? Because I definitely have a couple of items. I bought that faux fur checkered coat that everyone's been fucking wearing. I bought it at the end of last year and thank God promptly returned it. But It was just because I'd seen it so much on Instagram, I felt like I'd been tricked into wanting it. Like, how do you think that plays into our sort of purchases? Massively. You are absolutely stalked by items. I agree. Every time I look at anything, it then appears on every single website. I mean, mindset marketing or whatever it's called, or the algorithm that allows it to follow you around. I sort of can't believe it's legal 
from a GDP perspective. But then there are lots of things that I sort of can't believe are legal. So anyway, we'll park that. I think that the compulsion to share is a really interesting one. And I think the compulsion to buy something when you've seen it lots of places, I try and really challenge myself on that, mainly because I find it quite an interesting process to go through. For example, I've almost bought a pair of New Balance trainers so many times because I've seen them on loads of great people. They're a good price. They're obviously functional. But then I stop myself just before I check out because I realise I would never have gravitated towards a New Balance trainer. They're just not my style if I hadn't seen them on all sorts of trendy people. So it's... I'm so sorry, I have to give the push chair. It's locked in this room. Hold on. Sorry, baby girl. Here you go. Thanks. Also, it's something that I think I needed to go through anyway, having worked in fashion for five years, maybe six years, and then having not now for almost five years. So I kind of feel like I've been out of it for as long as I was in it now. But I never really loved fashion, although I definitely got caught up in trends, I think. I think it was quite hard not to when I was compiling endless shopping pages. What I loved and still love is style, which I still really love. And as a massive vintage shopper, a way that I've kind of been able to slightly get, I think, perspective over, do I like this or have I just been whacked over the head with it enough times, is by trying to find the kind of secondhand version, by sort of trying to opt out of that like direct reward style affiliate link and look for like the inspired buy but that's just like a personal decision that's not kind of meant to be actually I suppose actually it is an active resistance that is quite intentional definitely because you write about the Zara dress trend in that essay which I just found so horrific and annoying and I couldn't understand apart from the dress that I'm sorry but I just thought it was just quite an ugly dress but I couldn't understand why everyone would want that kind of herd mentality and would want to wear the same clothes that everybody was wearing. I mean, what do you think that that's about? I like that you apologised before dissing the dress. I'm sorry, but it was quite an ugly dress. I think lots of people aren't bothered by the herd mentality, obviously, hence the success of that dress. I think it comes from what I talk about a lot in the book, which is the paradox of choice that when you have so many options and it is so time consuming to click down every single hole of them, you just want something that comes kind of pre-ascribed with a social acceptability and like an easily transparent cultural cachet and is affordable. And that Zara dress did. It also, and this is where I think things go really mass, which is quite interesting, is it also appealed to people who dress modestly as well. So it wasn't just like a boohoo crop top, for example, it was below the knee, it was below the elbow, and it was like a crew neckline. So it gave kind of plenty of coverage. And it also worked in all sorts of seasons. I don't think they'll ever actually manage to replicate that again, because I think that really was the kind of explosion of a cultural moment. And I'd be really interested actually to see what reality TV does with their shopping the other side, because obviously shows like Love Island had become kind of live shopping. I mean, you're joking about doing a drive-by. That's what they were. They were drive-by fashion shows. Brands paid millions and millions to sponsor them and then have their clothes kind of dropped in. What a lot of people don't realise about Love Island is that they don't just pack a suitcase. Every single day they're taken into kind of clothing suites where they pick whole new outfits. And they're often predominantly from the retailer that has 
supported it. So it's quite a kind of subtle product placement, but product placement times a million zillion. I mean, they really get bang for their buck when they sponsor that show. But that kind of shopping, shopping whilst watching TV, is even more unconscious. And I'd just be interested to see what happens the other side of that, because that was really starting to take off when the pandemic came. And I wonder if Netflix, or if they'll resist that, if Netflix will sort of become the new Instagram. Because Instagram's been around for a while. People have been following fashion influencers for a while. I'm sure I'm not the only person that actually doesn't follow that many anymore. So maybe that means that people are looking for a new platform. I'm curious, actually, though, because you touched on it briefly, what your relationship with fashion and the fashion industry is like now, because a lot of people who follow your work will probably have become aware of you as the Sunday Times Styles wardrobe mistress, as you mentioned, and also through your Instagram, which used to be a lot more fashion focused than it is now. But you, as you said, have definitely moved away from fashion and talking about fashion, reporting on fashion. Why is that? My Instagram was a lot more fashion focused, I think, because I was just so immersed in it and it was my job. And now my job is something else. I moved away from it for a couple of reasons. I actually never meant to go wholesale into fashion. I never studied it. All my internships were features, you know, features assistant jobs at GQ and Evening Standard and Instar. But the job that came up, the first job that came up and the second job that came up was a fashion one. So I think when I kind of stepped back and took a breath for a little while, I was so lucky to get that opportunity at Sunday Times. I think I was only 26 or something, which was a great age to have an editor job. I feel very lucky, or not just age, you know, I hadn't had masses of experience, but I'd also had a blog. Wherever I was, I'd always freelanced on the side. So I packed quite a lot into a short amount of time. I was still, however, very lucky. But it was like an absolute whirlwind. And I think when I took a step back, I realised that it was cliche when I was about to turn 30. And I just realised it wasn't particularly where I wanted to be. And there were other itches I wanted to scratch. And I actually never meant to kind of definitively re-strategize. It's just, I am a big believer in kind of following your gut on stuff and I also really like to quit when I'm ahead so I stopped that job at the Sunday Time Style and everyone told me I was completely mad and what was I doing and you know the same happened with the high low everyone told me I was completely mad and what was I doing and I just like to challenge myself and to really interrogate where I kind of want to be at that moment so it wasn't really intentional but at the same time it wasn't something I necessarily wanted to be a grinding part of I wasn't able, for example, to get in because at that time, thank God that's changing, you just couldn't put vintage in shopping pages. People get really cross if they couldn't buy it. But I'd always bought a lot of vintage clothing. It'd always been half of my wardrobe. And the way that I was having to write about fashion wasn't actually the way I was engaging with it or wearing it. And fashion is a business and there are a lot of parts of that business that are riveting. There are lots of parts that I found boring and frustrating. And I now have a much more, not ambivalent, because I'm still fascinated by it, but it's a lot less of a personal relationship with the fashion industry and with fashion generally, which I really, really like. I shop a lot less. I still have way too many clothes. I still love clothes, but I don't shop like I used to. I don't read coverage on fashion shows. I don't ever watch the fashion shows. I'm only ever interested by what's in fashion in terms of how it relates to other kind of social cultural things like in kind of the things that I talk about and get the look how it relates to the way women are living their lives 
but I just wasn't really interested in who was the creative director at that time and what dinner was going on where and maybe that's because I was in the fortunate position of getting to do all of that of really getting to experience all of that of being very immersed in it and having lots of opportunities that lots of people would have dreamt of so then I kind of felt like I was fully able to make that decision but it was quite an organic decision I decided to quit my job the day I quit my job and we decided to launch the Hilo the next day so I'm not impulsive but I am quite decisive I suppose Mm, definitely I've always gotten that impression from you I'm curious actually because I find it a challenge or something I'm trying to navigate at the moment like I am into fashion I'm into clothes I'm not into as you say the kind of inner workings of the fashion industry I'm not that bothered by which designer is jumping to which you know luxury fashion house but something that I'm trying to navigate and I've talked about this with other writers that I've interviewed for this series. I talked about it with Marjon Carlos, who is a former staff writer at Vogue US, is worrying about my sort of credibility and worrying about how I will be perceived and how my writing will be received as a result of being like a young, I don't know, young-ish. I don't know what 30 is at this point, but a young woman who is interested in fashion, interested in lifestyle stuff. But to an extent, I'm quite nervous about putting it out there because I think people tend to really try and box you in and judge you and don't give you or your work the credit I'm talking about myself really but like a general you don't necessarily give you the credit that you deserve I mean definitely that's something that I've had a lot of in my career it's been almost four and a half years since I stopped writing about fashion bar literally probably two or three pieces which was almost as long as I was in fashion but when people don't find value in what I do or they want to emphasize that I'm vacuous or lightweight they will reference me as a fashion journalist or a influencer or things that factually I am not and I think it's really sad that that stuff happens. It absolutely 100% happens. But it's also so reductive because your essay about fashion and the reason I've kind of latched onto it is because I think it speaks to so many wider cultural phenomena. And I think people who try and dismiss or poo-poo discussion of fashion is inherently lightweight. I just think, I mean, are we still doing that in 2020, 2021? Like, I just I think it's slightly pathetic. So I wasn't going to write about fashion at all in my book. But I think that that would have been a notable omission a because you're someone who understands the inner workings of that industry better than most like you've definitely told me things about fashion about like magazines giving certain number of credits to advertisers that I wouldn't have known otherwise and I think that that's the kind of information that should be out there if you're a consumer of media you should know that that is often what determines which brands you know advertise to you in the so-called editorial pages of a magazine so I've I think it would have been a bit of an omission, but I kind of want to talk more generally about professional ambition and success because you're also one of the most nauseatingly hardworking people that I know. Like, I just find your work ethic just a little bit jealousy inspiring. But there's an essay called Work to Get Happy, which is about work and productivity culture and, you know, work as a sort of source of fulfilment. And you talk about comparisonitis and the pressure that millennials and particularly millennial women put on themselves and their careers to achieve certain milestones by a certain age. And that feeling like time is running out. There's an acronym you use, FOMOG, fear of missing out on goals. And I related to that 
so, so much. I spent the first half of my 20s obsessed with other people's ages, obsessed with other people's achievements. And while I'd like to say that the reason I got over that and chilled out a bit was due to, you know, personal growth and getting older, the reality is that it's just because I achieved a lot of the goals that I wanted. You know, I wrote a book, I got put on some lists, then that feeling kind of dissipated. And I'm curious as to what role that sort of FOMOG, fear of missing out on goals, has played in your own life and in your own career. So that acronym was pilfered from Leomi Anderson, who is a, I was going to say supermodel, and then maybe she's just a model. Either way, she's very successful. And she had said something about how she wanted to be a millionaire by the age of 25, and lots of people had laughed and there'd been, you know, some mocking headlines about it. I took that acronym and credited it to her, but sort of ran with it. I think that it is probably quite a key part of ambition. I think anyone who's really ambitious has the feeling that they're running out of time or that there's only a certain amount of time to do stuff or that they want to be doing loads of things at once. I do think that's a part of ambition. I think that's probably why ambitious people tend to be quite restless. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I don't think it's necessarily calm, peaceful, contented way to live. So that's kind of one thing is that I think it is inherent in people like that. I also think that it has become exacerbated just by how visible work culture is now, which I don't like at all. I don't think you should have to prove that you're working by posting about it. Obviously, it depends on what your job is, but it's not a million miles away from kind of the bums on seats work culture, which used to be part of an office I worked in, which really drove me mad, where like you weren't working unless we can see you. So for example, I think of social media as work. It's not how I like to spend my free time. So it needs to be factored into my work day. And it takes a lot of time. And yet I don't think we really metabolize it that way. I'm constantly asked to check things out on social media or to follow this or to share this or to support this. And, you know, that takes hours every week. And those are unpaid hours. I'm not saying they're not valuable, but they're unpaid. And so I've kind of been always interested about how I meant to just fit in this extra part of my job, whilst also kind of making visible the work I do. And I feel less pressure to do that now on a personal level, just as someone a bit older. And as you say, who's been lucky enough to do certain things that were on the bucket list. So I think some of it comes not necessarily just with age, but also with like career progression. But I do think it's very difficult not to feel that panic speeding up when you see what everyone else is doing all the time. And again, that's sort of why I try not to do too much clicking around online to be quite intentional about how I use online or social media. But my problem has never actually been worrying about what everyone else is doing. Mine is just this like Catholic guilt of never being (laughs) productive enough. Unfortunately, it comes from my mum. And I think there's probably quite a lot of Catholics who are driven in a similar way. Yeah, I always get the impression like you're not, you don't seem to have much laziness in you. I know that sounds like a really weird thing to say, but I I was joking with my mum a couple of months ago and she is also somebody that I would not describe as a lazy person at all. And we were joking. It was like, how did I become lazier? Like, I've just acquired, I have an inherent sloth. And every day and every week is me kind of fighting against it. Like my inner lazy person. I have that as well. Do I do you? have that as well. Yeah, like mm. I lie in bed most evenings reading. That's not lazy. I lie in bed scrolling through Twitter. <laughs> I don't know if I think that's lazy. I think reading has value. 
Yeah, but I think how you use your brain passively is just a different... Like when I'm lying in bed reading, sometimes it's active, but unless I'm reading a really kind of challenging piece of non-fiction, I'd say it's a fairly passive brain. It's just how your passive brain gets off versus mine. Mm, Yeah, fair enough. I like to start fights with people on Twitter and you like to read. So I actually want to talk about something. You mentioned, you know, big career successes and bucket lists and Obviously, one of, I think, the biggest successes that you've had career-wise, if I can say so, is your hugely popular podcast, The Hilo, which ran for four years. As you know, I was an avid fan. I listened to it right from the start when it was called The Pandolly Podcast. And you and Dolly, your co-host, recently brought that to an end. And I would like to know why. She stole my husband. Uh, she took my house and yeah uh, no this is an exclusive guys I can't wait for this to be written up in like the evening standard anyway carry on yes it definitely was the most successful thing I've done and I'm so grateful to it for the opportunities it opened and in such an organic way which is what I loved about it we did not start it to be a business and we were slightly thrown when it kind of became one not in a bad way but it just was not what we'd expected we brought it to a close. We just always decided it was going to run for four years. I don't know what it is about four years. I was at the Sunday Times for four years as well. I've never had a job longer than four years. So that was actually my longest running job. And we decided so long before it ended that it would end December 2020. And when we decided to end it, we thought, and I'm so glad we did this, it's kind of my favourite decision we ever made around the high low and it just felt like such a appropriate note to end it on we decided to do a last Christmas show that all of the proceeds would go to blood cancer which is something that my godson very sadly died from complications of last year and one of Dolly's closest family friends who's like a sister to her also died from blood cancer so that was always something we wanted to do and it just felt so fitting to do this ridiculous completely unscripted chaotic show and for the money to go to that and it just felt complete it felt really complete when we ended that on that note that when we did the last show it wasn't really emotional and it did take about 400 years to record and edit it was like a marathon because we had our listeners as part of it which is what just undid me and I think it caused quite a lot of people to come completely undone as well is having our listeners being part of it and getting them to read out their letters and I don't think we'd realised that it had played a role in people's lives perhaps just beyond a podcast we knew that there was kind of a community that had found itself loosely and in different ways there's this brilliant thing called the grief network set up by a high low listener called Rachel who wrote into us once when we used to do ask the high low about how she'd lost her mum in her mid-20s and she felt really lost and she wondered if anyone else had lost a parent at that age she couldn't find any groups and she couldn't find any reading material And then what came from that, we put a few people in touch with her. She sort of ran with this idea she'd had. And now we've seen the Grief Network in like multiple newspapers, magazines. She's built this incredible group. Obviously, the Hilo can't take credit for that. But it's just amazing that people within the kind of extended Hilo community just found each other and went off and did stuff like that. So I haven't really answered your question aside from it just felt right. It felt complete. And I miss bits of it, but I also just feel so fond of it. I was once in a cafe in Mexico City and overheard the two girls on the next table talking about the high-low. I just thought that was extraordinary. 
But something I want to talk about, I mean, you obviously had such a huge fan base and a really big following, but you guys also had to deal, I think, with a fair bit of criticism while it was running, often as it related to class and privilege, some of which I think was well-intentioned. Maybe it might be like a correction on like the fact that you'd gotten wrong in the recording of an episode and you guys would address it in the next episode. And a lot of which I think was just in bad faith. And I wonder what that was like to experience and how the podcast evolved as a result of it. Because as someone who listened to it, as I said, right from the start to the very last episode, I definitely did feel like I noticed a slight shift, perhaps, in terms of you guys becoming a little bit more guarded. But I'd really love to hear you kind of speak honestly about what that was like. I think when something becomes bigger, you naturally become a bit more careful and guarded just because the ramifications of it are larger. And I think I'd naturally become more guarded in my life anyway since I had children. Sharing the ins and outs in certain forums just weren't really what I wanted to do and weren't necessarily helpful to me from a mental health perspective. So I think that was quite a natural evolution anyway. In terms of criticism, I tried to sort of be ambivalent to it. At the beginning, I think I thought with criticism that you had to respond and engage and enact change based on what everyone said. But there is a difference between critique and shit talk. Mm -hmm. And it can become quite hard to figure out what is what and the lines around what to draw. And I think generally... I now think the best thing to do is, as you say, if someone had or has a point correcting you or something, like a point of education, then I'm always interested in learning about that. And we would always write back to someone about that. And that still exists now in the work I do. And I'm I'm always interested in that. But if it's just someone really hates you, they don't think you're meaningful, they think you're stupid and annoying, there's really no point engaging in that because what they want is they want to have a row. And I don't. (laughs) I don't want to have a row with someone I've never met. And I also think there's a bit of a confusing thing now about this kind of feedback loop we're in, where you didn't have it when you created stuff sort of 10, 20 years ago, is people are entitled to think and comment on whatever they want that you put out there in public. That may be hard to deal with, and indeed it has been hard to deal with in the past, but they are entitled to that. What they are not entitled to is a response from Mm. that person unless that person's genuinely done something offensive like I quite literally and I don't think many people do do not have the time to make the work share the work and then defend the work and I also don't think a defensive position is particularly helpful I think when my book came out I obviously read the critical reviews in newspapers or magazines or what have you or people would send them to me if they were bad and say, what do you think? Which is sort of this charming thing about social media. But I've never read Amazon or Goodreads. And I don't intend to because I don't think the vast volumes of what people think of you and your work is particularly helpful when you're trying to stay... um, Grounded. Or just a bit pure. I think if you create work heavily in the context of what everyone else is going to think of it and what naysayers in particular are going to think of it I think it diminishes the work like I think writing there's just no work left yeah you're just defending yourself the whole time and, and caveating and like working on the book that I've just finished now I was so conscious I think to an extent thinking about you know 
the criticism that could be possibly made of a particular argument or viewpoint is useful but I was so conscious I was like god if anyone screenshots this bit out of context I'm gonna get dragged on Twitter and I just thought fuck it like I cannot write my book for the sake of what somebody with 10 followers and an egg for a profile picture is going to say about it on Twitter the thing is is that does happen and it is difficult I wrote in the book a bit about motherhood and how becoming a mother was wonderful for me but I really struggled with my social identity and both times I had children I really struggled with my mental health in a, I think it was an Italian review you know that got condensed down into well she's got it all figured out she loves being a mother and I thought oh gosh for anyone reading that I hate completely it. erases the nuance of what you've said it really does and also it did reinforce my fear about writing and talking about motherhood and my own personal experience which I've been very reticent on and very deliberately which is we're still very limiting on how we let people talk about motherhood the more popular way to talk about motherhood is it's a terrible thing no one warned me how terrible it was going to be and there is value in that if you don't if you really like being a mother then it's smug. So I don't really know where you are on that. I personally have never wanted to do the motherhood is terrible. That doesn't mean lots of it isn't really difficult. But I just personally didn't want to write that because I've got two older sisters who desperately want children and haven't yet had them. And so to complain about what I've got would be really, really difficult for them. You know, that's a very intentional thing for me. That doesn't mean I don't think that people shouldn't be allowed to talk about their experiences, but I don't want to talk about it like that. So if I did talk about it, it would probably only be in a positive sense because I have a positive experience of it and I feel very grateful for them. But then, yeah, that can be seen as smug. So I truly don't see a way in which I or many women are able to do that. (laughs) That makes sense. I mean, I feel like what we've just talked about ties in really well with your final essay in the book, The Raw Nerve, which I loved. It, you know, it's about the kind of general febrility, febrileness, whatever that is, of online discourse, which leaves very little room for missteps, very little room for grey areas, very little room for anyone to not be 100% right and cover off all their bases when making a statement. And I want to quote something that you said, just two sentences that I really loved, where you said, it has got to the point where many people are scared to express their point of view in case they are publicly shamed for not staying within the package of ideas ascribed to them. And you also said, it's less about being right and more about not appearing wrong. And I thought that final sentence just kind of blew my mind because there are definitely topics, I think we've probably talked about them privately, that I am nervous about wading into on social media. Not many topics, but, you know, a couple. Because I do think people are, I guess as you said, looking for a fight, but they're looking for you to trip up. And I I wonder where you think that's come from even. That was my favourite essay, actually, and it's interesting because that's probably been the one that I've been asked about the least, but I think it would be kind of quite helpful for now, actually, the fibrility, as you put it. You have to be so careful when you talk about this, don't you? Because what I don't mean is, like, what we're seeing now is lots of people in very privileged positions being like, just let me speak, and, you know, then claiming that freedom of speech is under attack because they can't say discriminatory things. That is not what I mean. What I think is that everyone now is held to everything they think all the time and that is quite dangerous and terrifying because people are going to say things before they speak and I don't mean really offensive things but if there's no room to work things out Mm. then the work is really going to suffer and the conversations are really going to suffer and Mm. that is something that makes me worried. I'm curious as to you know who some of your favourite essayists 
are or some of your favourite essays that you've read that possibly even influenced your writing of this book? Oh, I don't know if anyone directly influenced the writing of this book, but there are loads of essayists that I love whose work I definitely benefited from. I love Anne Helen Peterson. I love Roxane Gay. I love Gia Tolentino and lots of the other writers at The New Yorker like Gia Yang Fan. I love slightly humorous essayists like David Sedaris, Raven Smith, Joel Golby. And then we don't really call them essayists in the UK, but long form writers like Sharin Kale. I think she's completely brilliant. I really like Moya Lothian McLean's writing on Galdem. There are lots of great long form writers. It's really interesting, I think, to see long form. It's definitely becoming more of a thing over here. And I feel like publications over here were always a bit more resistant than the States. Mm. New Statesman's doing a lot more of it as well. Really like the long form on New Statesman. Yeah, lots of different people. Lots of great reading recommendations there, which actually brings me quite nicely onto what I think will be our final question. You're very much a known bibliophile. I know you love to read. So I'm curious as to what you've been reading lately and if there are any books that are coming out soon that you've particularly enjoyed and would like to recommend. So many great books coming out this year, I feel. Like I've just read so many wonderful ones. Acts of Desperation by Megan Nolan is coming out pretty soon, I think. Absolutely loved that. We Are All Birds of Uganda by Hafsa Zayan and Aftershocks by Nadia Awusu. I think those have both just come out. Read an amazing one called Sorrow and Bliss about a woman who's had kind of lifelong depression and the kind of trivialities and also annoyances, how annoying it is for people in her life that she is ill for so long in this invisible way. It's the best book I've ever read about kind of long-term, lifelong depression which isn't necessarily incapacitating daily but it's the lens through which she sees her life and Careless by Kirsty Cape I adored which is about a teenage girl growing up in the care system and the author herself grew up in the care system and I really haven't read enough books written by or about people growing up in care I could give you so many more but oh here comes the miracle by Anna Beecher that's lovely about her brother who has cancer it's based on a true story Okay, I think that is definitely a good list to get started with. Pandora, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this week and also for this series. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for your lovely responses to each episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this series as much as I've enjoyed making it. I'll be back in July with another roster of fantastic guests and a special money-themed series to coincide with the publication of my forthcoming book, We Need to Talk About Money, which you can pre-order now wherever books are sold. I've included links to a few booksellers, as well as to my live event with Fane on July 7th in the show notes. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegu Agba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please, please, please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. See you soon.